I think the most important thing is just to be watching and listening and so that they know it's safe to say whatever they have in mind. Sometimes it's, you know, I don't want my kids to see me like this or I don't want, you know, my family. Um, I just like, here's, here's one of the, the challenges is when someone who's dying and knows they're dying is still articulate and says, I don't want to have a funeral. I don't want to have any kind of gr grieving. I don't want to have any, you know, response to my death. I've had a good life and that's that. I'd like you to meet Kristen Corrigan. She is a chaplain with Baptist Housing Smith Creek Village in Kelowna, British Columbia. Kristen has been serving with Baptist Housing for a little over 18 months, but has an extensive background in serving others through leadership training and human resources, and was also the president of the Quebec School of Evangelical Theology. She retired from this position in 2019 and then moved to Kelowna where she began to explore chaplaincy. I retired in 2019 right. from uh, l'école de théologie évangélique du Québec, the Quebec School of Evangelical Theology, okay. um, which was partnered with Laval University, and uh, moved back from Montreal to Kelowna, where I became reacquainted with one of the profs that I'd had when I was at seminary, <laughs> Daryl Busby. Yes. And uh, he wanted to sort of slow down a little bit. And I was sort of thinking I wasn't ready to totally slow down. So he talked to me about chaplaincy. And I had been considering perhaps um, pastorate or something like that. I wasn't sure. So one thing led to the next and I decided to go back to school. So I'm okay. still working on a postmaster's certificate in spiritual care for seniors. You're wow. never too old, folks. No. <laughs> and Today... We're talking about grief and walking with residents, family, team members, and taking care of ourselves when someone we serve as a chaplain passes away. Our talk begins with Kristen sharing with me about her practices when a resident in her care becomes palliative. Well, palliative is an interesting term because it cover, can cover quite a broad range of time. So yeah. the first thing to do is to... to think about and find out what do we mean by palliative for this particular person at this particular stage? Uh, are they, uh, is death imminent or mm -hmm. is it uh, early in the process of fading? Right. And so I'll usually spend some time speaking with the RN and the staff that take care of the, of the resident just to find out what's going on. Of course, I've been usually following on the, uh, on PCC, on the, on the official documentation when I come in in the morning, I'll check uh, the various uh, communities that we have to find out who's who's on first, you know, who's doing <laughs> well, who's not doing well. Uh, and I'll do a little bit of uh, rounds to find out, you know, do we have people who are actively palliative? Uh, do we have people who have changed from being relatively healthy to early stages of palliation? You know, what, where are our people in their various uh, phases and, and stages? Yeah. Once I know that, it depends on how imminent it is and how, what kind of a relationship we have with the family and with that individual, of course, mostly. Um, and so if we've built a relationship with that individual, it may simply be a matter of sitting down and, and if they are still able to, to speak and share, then we might be exploring a little bit about uh, how they're, you know, how are they feeling uh, really 
uh, you know, is there fear? Is there anxiety? How, what is their body language saying? Uh, how are they reacting to this? Now we know though, as it gets closer and further on in the process, there tends to be less dialogue with the individual. Mm-hmm. And so this is where interaction with the staff and the family comes into play a little bit more. Okay. And how do you proceed if someone kind of tells you, you know, I'm, I'm afraid if you get that kind of a, a response or, or maybe I just don't know what comes next or yeah. like how deeply do you go with them? And it'll depend a lot. I, I tend to have that kind of conversation on the spur of the moment more often when I'm, I volunteer at the local hospital as well uh, one weekend a month. And so I would usually have more of that kind of an intense conversation uh, when someone is become has just been diagnosed, for example, with terminal cancer. That's not the kind of model we tend to get too often in the seniors' residence. Yeah. Uh, and I had one of those not re- not very long ago where the woman was very afraid, and um, so we I it was mostly about listening. You know, what is your background? How have you dealt with? fear in the past? Uh, what is it that you're most afraid of? Um, you know, because it, it depends a lot. If, if they've had a faith background, we can go down that path to explore what does your faith tell you? Now, but a lot of people don't have that. And so it's going to be a matter of a lot of the time it, for them, it'll be I'm terrified that I'm, you know, I'm going to be in a lot of pain. Okay, mm-hmm. let's let's talk about that for a moment. What are the options for that? And so it depends what tangent that they are on, how you're going to respond. But I think the most important thing is just to be watching and listening. Yeah. And so that they know it's safe to say whatever they have in mind. Sometimes it's, you know, I don't want my kids to see me like this. Mm-hmm. Or I don't want, you know, my family um, I just like here's here's one of the, the challenges is when someone who's dying and knows they're dying is still articulate and says, I don't want to have a funeral. I don't want to have any kind of gr- grieving. I don't want to have any, you know, response to my death. I had a good life and that's that. And oh dear. <laughs> they're owning they're trying to own other people's grief. Yeah. And I've had uh, one occasion, a chance to share. Well, how do you think that works for your kids? And, and so it's that kind of a, a probing conversation that would be needed. So it depends on the scenario so much. Palliative care is, as Kristen pointed out, a fluid idea, isn't it? It doesn't always mean the same thing for everyone. And it doesn't mean the same kind of interactions will occur between your resident and you. And it for sure doesn't mean the same kind of health or life progression will happen for your resident every time. That has been something I'm coming to understand, that every person is very different in how they respond and as they near the end of their life, both physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I appreciated Kristen's reminder of that truth. I also very much appreciated her point around how important it is for us to be there to listen and learn about what is important to them, to our resident, as they near the end of their journey with us. It's not about me or what I think is important. It's about what our residents are thinking and feeling. Coming up next, 
As I was thinking about what Kristen had shared about the importance of listening well to our residents as they approached the end of their life, I asked her if it was difficult to learn that art of asking questions versus wanting to share her faith or hope at this stage of someone's life. As someone who came to faith later in life than many of my counterparts, I don't find it as difficult yeah. uh, as perhaps some would. I was almost 40 years old when I came to faith, and so I have uh, a view of the world that might be a little less um, focused, although I have a strong faith and I'm ready to talk about my faith or about their faith on a moment's notice, um, I don't feel compelled to talk about it until I have a sense that that's what they need and where they're going with it. Because mm. there are people who are not believers and I don't, I'm not, no, I don't feel a tension about, you know, sharing what's important to me. Because this isn't about me. This is about them. And what do they need to see this through? Yeah. And has that been something that I, I, I think you've kind of already answered it, but has that been something that you've worked on that, that idea of it's not about what I think they need. It's about them telling me what's important for them. Yes. I would, I would suggest that uh, a lot of the research, the studies that I've done, the studying I've done uh, the background in human resources as well is a good overlap. The, the background in in leadership there's so many transferable concepts that have really helped me grow i think from someone who would have wanted to share my view maybe more quickly yeah uh, to someone who is more comfortable in listening uh, and I, that has it, it, that's been a lifelong journey. <laughs> yeah. it, it didn't come, I don't know that it came naturally. It came from a lot of practice at remembering that I have two ears and one mouth. <laughs> I've heard that <laughs> And I one should before. be using them proportionately. <laughs> yes. Uh, and how do you know for you when it's important to, to actually begin sharing in a gentle way about your faith do you do you ever feel that sensation that i i need to say something oh yes but i believe that god will prompt me when it's time and my experience to this point is that usually his prompting comes across reasonably gently and supportive of the person's need and where they're at like mm. because um I can use the vernacular reasonably comfortably. I don't think it comes across as being preachy. Yeah. Um, so it can appeal to a broader, a broad audience, uh, perhaps. Yeah, I'm not shy if I feel the door open. If I, do, if I feel God nudging me, and I have felt that in times where I'm going, okay, Lord, I really don't want to do this. He's going, and I, can, I get this little dialogue going on in my head. Yeah, And he's, uh, I can remember being in a big board meeting one time and I don't sing or I've never, I've never been a singer at all. And uh, we did a round of prayer and then there was a quiet time. They said, if anything comes to mind, it could be an image, it could be a song, it could be whatever. 
it, it could be a word, spit it out. And in there, I had this feeling like I was supposed to sing a song. I'm going, no, Lord, I can't do that. I can't do this in public. That's embarrassing. And he's going, open your mouth and the words will come out. And uh, I came out with, be still and know that I am God. And everybody kind of, everybody picked it up and started to sing with me. And it took all the pressure off of me. And afterwards, everybody was just like, there was such a, a feeling in the room. Mm. There was a special feeling in the room. And I've just felt like I get, I feel like I get a nudge. And I'll, if I try to argue with it and it comes back, then I know it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> that must sound a bit strange, but it's the only way I can describe no, it. I love that. And I think, uh, so does, does it kind of feel that way? when you are with a resident where you feel that nudge? Yes. Yes. I can feel that nudge and just be able to say, you know, something, you know, uh, I, and say, for example, I don't know what their faith background is or what, although I'll usually have an idea because mm -hmm. we have it on file. Did they right. come from whatever background right. here at, at Smith Creek? Um, but I, I'm quite comfortable in saying, you know, God loves you. And uh, I just, I, I encourage you to just experience a sense of peace or something like that. I mean, I don't know. The situation varies, right? But yeah. I'm not shy to say that sort of thing because when it comes from a place of love, they'll understand that, whether it's exactly what their belief is or not. There's nothing intrusive about it. Yeah. And that, that's my goal is for it never to be intrusive into their spirit, but that it would encourage them in some way or strengthen them in some way and i know that that's not up to me that's up to the spirit, holy spirit to do that's right yeah. um so if he gives me that to to offer then i'll do that yeah. and um it has certainly happened on many occasions and it's and, worked. And do you ever feel or struggle with or have struggled with a sense of pressure or a sense of oh i i have to have this conversation i know that they're not or i'm pretty sure that they're not believers and they're approaching uh well death is getting closer it's imminent do you ever have that sense of like not necessarily god like making you or or leading you in that way do you ever like just struggle inside oh, of yourself let me share a struggle with you that i had with my own father who was declared agnostic Okay. <laughs> okay. He was dying of pancreatic cancer. He wanted to die at home, but he was in and out of the hospital a couple of times before he died. Yeah. And I was on my way out to visit him in the hospital one day and I felt God saying, talk to him about me. And I thought, oh, dear, 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 this is my own earth father I'm speaking about, it, who was a very strong man, a very... We, he was very clear that our, our home was not a democracy. It was an autocracy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So he, he was a very strong character and I'm going, Oh Lord, I, I don't know if I can do this. And all the way out to that hospital, I felt this, I need to say something. I need to say something. And I finally said, okay, Lord, I'll say it if, as long as mom's not there. <laughs> Cause I mean, if she was there, I, I couldn't do it. I just felt like I couldn't do it. So I got to the hospital and there was my mom's park, a car parked in the parking lot. And I went, Whew, that was, <laughs> that was good. Uh, but I parked right beside her and I went beside her car and I went up in the elevator. And by the time I got up to his room, 
He looks around and he goes, oh, you've just missed your mother. She must have been just in the elevator beside you. And I'm going, oh, Lord. (laughs) So we chatted for a few moments. And uh, then I said, Daddy, could I talk to you about something really important to me that I think could be important to you? And that is about faith. And he looked at me straight in the eye and he said, Chrissy, which he alone can call me. Yeah. <laughs> Noted. <laughs> I, no, thank you. Um, I've thought about this for a long time and I made my decision a long time ago. No. Wow. And I started to cry and I said, just no, daddy, I love you so much. And, and he says, it's okay. You don't need to cry. I made, I made my decision. I'm comfortable. And that just about tore my heart out. Because I, um, I would so love to have had him say yes. And he died a week later. Oh, my. So, yeah, have the conversations ever been difficult? You betcha. But we can only lead the horse to water. We can't make him drink. And I think that experience, I couldn't imagine anything being harder than that. Yeah. So any of them since then... I wouldn't put on the same level of tension from within me. You know, even just telling that story is very hard to this day. I bet. Thank you for sharing it. It doesn't get much harder than that, does it? We really can't lead someone where they don't already want to go. It's up to the Lord to be working in their heart to draw them near. And if they don't want to go, just like God does, We must respect their choices, no matter how difficult it is. What a challenging topic. And once again, Kristen, I know you're likely listening to this at some point. Thank you for being so open about you and your dad and how hard this was for you. I think your story is so important to share and to think about as we learn how to serve our residents as they near death. Next. Kristen talks with me about how much she gets involved with the families of the resident as their death approaches. It, it varies per community and, and per person. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are certain individuals with whom you can create a, a close uh, relationship early on in there. It tends to depend how early in their residency here that you develop that relationship and how much they include their family. And sometimes over a period, you know, even in the 18 months I've been here, I've had some really good, uh, pretty close relationships with residents and and getting to know some of their family and mm-hmm. have been asked, you know, to be engaged with the family afterwards in some way. Yeah. It's so individual. Uh, you know, sometimes you get really quite engaged with the family, you know, their story, you know, the grandchildren. Um, and of course, those are the ones you're going to get closer to. Uh, so if once somebody's palliative, uh, you know, that just continues on that journey. It's all part of the same trajectory. And to some degree, it's going to depend whether I'm here. I only work part-time and so does Daryl work part-time, right. but we tag team really well. And, um, you know, we could get called in. I've been called in on a Sunday afternoon for somebody who was palliative and spent the whole, you know, afternoon into evening with her. <laughs> and that, the one I'm thinking about that that happened to is six eight months ago and she's still with us (laughs) wow 
you know, palliative is a really interesting term. They thought it was imminent that she would die within the day. And she rallied back. So I never make too much of any given label. The question is, is the person comfortable? Are they being loved? Is their care adequate? Do they have a spiritual need that needs to be addressed? How are we going to do that so that they live the most comfortable way, loved way they can towards the end of their life? And then when they die, we have another process that we engage. And uh, is there like a, a process that you follow in engaging family or is it really different for everybody? Like, Well, there are know. some, yeah, there are some uh, steps along the way that we are consistent. We try to make sure that we know what the wishes of the individual are and how much the family will be involved. And then depending how that unfolds, the family may end up getting more involved. There's always a what we call a TSDM1, a, a primary person who has... Uh, executorship uh, and uh, power of attorney and so on so that depending how the health declines there's somebody who can make some decisions and it's not up to our staff Um, once the person is uh, you know passing or has passed we do want to offer to the family uh, an option of what we call a um, an honor guard and an honor guard is they have the choice. They can participate or, or accept it or reject it. Uh, have you heard of an honor guard before? Um, I might have, but maybe it would be good for you to explain what, it, what you mean by that. So what we do as an honor guard is when the person passes, their um, <clears throat> TSDM1 or executor is required to contact the funeral home. So they'll be coached through the steps of, you know, what who should do what Uh, a message gets sent out to our staff saying that this person has passed and that we will hold this honor guard. And then we ask the staff or the, the resident's family, do they approve and do they want to attend? Basically what it is, is that when the uh, funeral coach arrives to pick up the deceased, uh, the um, we will meet them at the room where the person has been. We will uh, once the funeral home staff have done what they need to do, we will cover the deceased with a, a, cer- a ceremonial blanket. Right. And uh, so sometimes the family will be part of that because it's a way of being of being involved a little bit with the exit of their loved one. And just as when people come here, they are um, received with love and care and dignity and respect. We want to see them exit in the same with the same sense, the same feeling, excuse me, when they leave for the last time. So this is a farewell event where all the staff are involved, are invited that would have worked with this person. And when we bring the deceased out into a pre-decided space, it might be a hallway, it might be down near the funeral coach. It just depends on the logistics of that space. Then we will have a brief ceremony, uh, that would align with the person's values. And typically in this context, it does tend to be a Christian ceremony. And so I have a little portable speaker, which I don't have on my desk here. uh, And I'll have that playing some quiet hymn music. We'll say a few verses. We'll offer the staff and the family a chance to say a few words about their loved one, about the deceased. Um, Then either Daryl or I will say a few words also, uh, perhaps a scripture. 
probably say the Lord's Prayer together because a lot of people know that even if they don't have a big uh, background, a, a strong faith background. Yeah. And then we will escort that loved one over to the coach and we will remove the ceremonial blanket uh, together uh, and to say farewell. And it, it, that tends to be a very moving time for families and for the staff because they become very close to these people. They're intimate, you know, with the care that they're giving. And so it's, it's uh, cathartic for both staff and family to be part of that process typically. And after that happens, do you, are you usually, or does it happen that you get invited to do the memorial service for them? Or is it kind of, that's the end of the relationship usually? From time to time, we do get asked uh, to conduct a memorial or a graveside service. Uh, we have one coming up this weekend, actually, that Daryl and I will be co-officiating. Um, hmm. uh, it, it's not really common, though. Most people will have their pastor or their way that they want to celebrate the person's life. But it does happen. Yeah. Um, so after that has happened, have you had times where you need to continue to offer support to the family? Like after the after the person has passed away, the funeral has has already happened. Does that relationship kind of stop or do you tend to continue with them? Uh, I've not personally had a chance to continue with people yet. Uh, one thing I should mention that's kind of a nice touch. When the person passes, we have, can you see that? I don't, yep. I don't, um, we have what we call a memory tree that we will put on the community right. and the, it has tiny little clothespins on it. Okay. And so the staff typically will be the ones who would write a note or two, a note or whatever, little farewell or a little reflection or a verse or whatever it is that came to their mind, and they'll put it on the tree. Hmm. Then Daryl or I will gather, collect the tree, and we'll write a, um, a note of condolences and put all the little notes in there. Oh, neat. And so there's another little step that we do here. Um. But uh, in terms of long-term connection, no, I've not had that yet. Um, usually once the person's belongings have been moved out, uh, unless they have another member of the family living here, then that could continue on. And that sometimes happens. It's been a husband, wife, or, you know, sisters or brothers or whatever. Uh, we might continue to have the connection that way. But with over 200 residents and to 1.2 FTE chapel or chaplains, <laughs> there are logistical <laughs> troubles. Yeah. Challenges. Yeah. And how about with team members? Have you had uh, times where you've needed to walk with team members who are really taking it hard and oh yes. like feeling the loss? How have you done that? It's, it's sometimes just, a matter of putting an arm around someone, uh, let them cry for a few minutes. Uh, sometimes it's a conversation. Let's sit down, have a coffee, and how are you doing? Really? <laughs> the really seems to work. Because <laughs> people are used to say, how are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. No, you're not. Yeah, <laughs> and so, yeah, let, let, let's get real here. Um, so being an ear for them, can be very helpful. 
Um, you know, it takes a while to build the trust and the connection with staff who are working shifts and so on. But it's a beautiful thing when when they will um, start to seek you out uh, and say, you know, I'm, I'm having this problem or I know somebody else is having a problem. Can you come talk to them or whatever? So you start to realize that you've really you've you've built some trust and some uh, confidence between you and the, and the staff member uh, in that way. Uh, sometimes it'll be, you know, I had a situation a little while ago where there was a bit of a, a crisis and a staff member in a meeting was really having a problem. I said, Let, could we just stop and pray? And we stopped and prayed and she came over to me afterwards and she just, you know, like quite a, well, a couple of weeks later and said, I, I couldn't believe you did that. And I was so appreciative of it because I needed that so badly. I didn't even know I did. So, you know, you get these special moments that just happen. Yeah. And other ones you can plan for a little bit, you know, do you want to meet at two o'clock for a coffee and we'll chat. It happened again. I think every interview that I've had so far has left me with an aha moment or, hmm, that's an interesting idea that I'd like to try out. I like the idea Kristen shared about having a small memory tree for the resident who passes away be available on the floor where the resident lived so that team members or fellow residents can leave little notes, messages, or memories of the person who passed away. And then those little notes, if there are any, can be included in a letter of condolences that is sent to the family. I have always written to family after a resident passes away, but I have never tried involving fellow team members in this way. And it just feels like a lovely thing to do. And I'd like to try it. As we near the end of our interview, I asked Kristen to talk about things she has learned about dealing with death and loss. So for uh, my last question would be for a, a chaplain or someone who maybe is not a chaplain, but if maybe they're struggling with dealing with the loss of someone, it could be a resident maybe that they've worked closely with for a while and this person is slowly fading away or quickly fading away and they can see it and it's just been hard because of maybe workload. They just haven't had the chance to really start connecting with this idea uh, of the reality of it. And, and when it actually happens and they pass away and what is there anything that you have learned that has served you that you would love to share that you think would help some of us? I think giving ourselves permission to grieve. You know, in our culture, for a long time, I think it was like, get on with it. Um, and that is not very helpful at all. And so um, I think it's important for people just to simply say, it's okay if I'm sad. Now, I might have to take that sadness home and work it through in my own time you know, in whatever way I, you know, going for that walk or, or, or singing a song or whatever it is that somebody does to deal with their own grief. Because in the professional situation, sometimes you do have to kind of pull yourself up and, and manage it for a little while, but that's not permanent. No. At some point, we've got to give ourselves permission to let those tears flow, to 
sense that anger, uh, if that's what it is. If, in the case you're describing, I don't know why there would be anger, but we don't know what people's backgrounds are and what our triggers are. True. But self-awareness and being willing to get counseling. If you're in a deep place, uh, reach out to someone who's qualified. Uh, I have personally uh, reached out to counseling on several occasions in my life, in my career. That's been very helpful. Yeah. Uh, find a safe place where you can uh, emote in a way that works for you. You know, some people withdraw, some people uh, want to express their emotions. Um, but find a way that works for you that that honors who you are, but also keeps in mind as much as you can that it isn't other people's burden to carry other than if they're in a professional professional or in your intimate group. So for example, please don't share your grief on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that's the place for it. Like I, I, and I don't mean to be too strong with that, but I'm just thinking to share that you've had a loved one pass and to share that information is very important, but yeah. not a daily, monthly, yearly uh, thing. Do you know what I mean? Sure. So, uh, and of course, it could be also that if we're not finding a way to cope with that, a one-off, everybody will find a way through, I think. If it's happening frequently, you know, maybe we're in the wrong profession. Hmm. And, and it's okay to be in the wrong profession. I've changed profession quite a few times. And I wouldn't say it was because I was in the wrong profession. I loved everything I did, but there came a time when it was time to move to something else. Yeah. And uh, giving yourself permission, I think, is a big, a big part of it, because sometimes we're our, our own worst enemy. Aren't we, though? <laughs> we use words like we should or I should. Yeah. That's not a very useful pressure to put on ourselves. I feel is important. I feel yeah. very sad. Yeah. I feel so sad for the family that's been left behind or you know being able to vocalize what that feeling is why it's there and get it out is is really important yeah would, would you say that you're in a risky place or a dangerous place if uh you don't feel anything if that makes if you're sense? not feeling anything um about anything you know i mean it, it could be that if somebody passes that you never knew well you're not going to feel deep grief okay right. but, you, but you so it'll be a somewhat easier process to to deal with yeah. but if you are at a if a person is at a stage where they're not feeling anything about anything yes i would say that they definitely need to seek some help um that can be a sign of a lot of different things i'm not a, i'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist uh, but I have gone through personal um, deep challenges and uh, and I have needed to consult professionals to to deal with those moments in in my life. And I think it's if the truth be known, most people will have those moments when they need others that know how to handle these situations on hand. Yeah. And so please don't don't let yourself get to a point where you don't feel anything about anything. Yeah. That's not. That's not Jesus' way. That's not what God would have for us. Being numb isn't part of the human experience for any length of time. 
that's a good word. That's a good encouragement. And um, would there be signs that you would say now you need to start asking for help? Like if, if th these are some warning signs that maybe you're struggling and you don't know it, anything come to mind for you? Well, I think having people who you trust in your in your world in your in your life and if they are reflecting back some concerns those could be indicators hmm. uh you don't want to wait until you're carried out in an ambulance <laughs> no <laughs> which which i confess i've done yeah um <laughs> so you know uh listening to your loved ones if they're giving you indications, are, are you really okay? I, I'm concerned about you. Uh, you know, what are you feeling? And you can't, you can't respond with that. Um, yeah. There are, there will be indicators. If you, you know, people physically lose appetite, lose weight, gain weight, um, binge on whatever their thing is. Uh, right. Excesses, excesses in any direction are probably signs that, some tweaking at least needs to happen, if not uh, something a little more intentional and comprehensive. Okay. Well, uh, thank you, Kristen. That, that welcome, was Aaron. very, very helpful. Uh, is there anything uh, that you would just like to share off the top of your, your head or a lesson or something, a word of encouragement or hope or around this topic of grief that you think it's really important that you'd want someone listening to hear? I guess I'd, I'd sign off with, remember to take care of yourself. Hmm. Uh, I think most of us who have been professionals for a while sometimes forget to do that yeah. in a way that is what we need. So remember that for those of everybody who's ever flown they say put the oxygen mask on yourself first yeah and then on your loved one if you don't have if you're not breathing that you're not doing them much help yeah so treat yourself gently um build self-awareness around how you're doing really That's great. And so important. I think we all need to have that on, on replay. <laughs> Always be checking that you're breathing. <laughs> but spiritually yeah, and we, mentally and emotionally, right? Big time. And yeah. um, when we get, uh, I have, I have an, an eye watch and it sometimes says breathe. <laughs> <laughs> because when we get stressed, we tend to hold our breath. And I only became aware of that once I got this, <laughs> although I'd been told many times before, Kristen, breathe. That strange <laughs> purple amazing. color doesn't look good on you. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently. So a deep cleansing breath can do amazing things, but it may need more than that. Yeah. Well, th this was so helpful. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat with me.